There we go. Got the batteries fixed. If you can turn your Bible, please, to the New Testament letter of Jude. If I were a trendy pastor, I'd say I'm getting ready to start a new sermon series called Hey Jude. I'd also be wearing skinny jeans and a medium shirt. But I'm not a trendy pastor. You guys know that. Little letter of Jude, real brief book at the very back of your Bible. If you're not sure where it is, just go to the very end. You'll find Revelation, and right before that will be Jude. This morning we're going to start a brief study out of this short and nearly forgotten letter. Jude is a, one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's a very small, very short, but it also has kind of a, just has developed a reputation that's just not, I don't understand. It's such a great book. But it has been likened to a stepchild among the books of the New Testament. Its canonicity was debated by some early Christians. Those who did accept Jude as scripture didn't give it the same attention and prominence as nearly every other writing of the New Testament. Douglas Roston observed that Jude is the most neglected book in the New Testament Luke Timothy Johnson goes further to say that Jude is seldom read and less often studied. And we're going to remedy that the next few weeks. Jude is a fast-paced, colorful, intense, and warm letter. Though it is brief, it is dense. Its prose is spare, but it is pointed. Douglas Moose says that Jude packs a lot of material into a short space. Jude carefully and efficiently packs all this information, a lot of material into this short space. He carefully structures his argument and he focuses his attention on the main point. He does not chase any rabbit trails. He's got one point to make and he focuses and deliberately makes that in his letter. When you read Jude, it feels almost like you're running a sprint. The text moves quickly, and before you realize it, you've come to the end. But this short and ancient letter is more relevant than we realize. People in our world today are asking, what is truth? How do we know the truth? Who do we trust to provide us the truth? How can I be discerning between what is true and what is not? Living in a media age with portals into our minds and hearts at every turn, how is it that we can discern the truth? How do we know the truth? How can we stand in the truth once we discover the truth? What makes this even harder is when many would apply the label Christian to what they call truth. And for that reason, then, we must be even more astute and discerning. Douglas Moo writes in his commentary on Jude, we are inundated by allegedly Christian teaching of all kinds. And the pluralistic mindset of our age encourages us to be tolerant of this wide range of teaching. Too easily lost in this atmosphere of easygoing tolerance is a concern for truth. Jude calls Christians to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we must know the truth. Stand in the truth and defend the truth. So as we think about that issue over the next few weeks, we'll ask ourselves different questions. And the question for this morning is, who contends for the faith? Who contends for the faith? Who contends 
for the truth. The opening two verses of Jude not only introduce us to the author of this letter, but also the recipients who are called to contend for the faith. And I think how Jude identifies them helps us to see our own identity in Christ so that we can also stand in the truth and contend for the faith. Our focus this morning will be only on verses 1 and 2, but I want to read the whole letter so that we get some context for what we'll be dealing with both this morning and for the next few weeks. So hopefully you have your copy of the Bible open and just follow along in your translations I read, beginning in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursuit unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That a him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What Jude writes here is a letter, and he follows the standard pattern of a Roman letter. We saw this with Paul in Galatians. But he also adapts that letter for the purpose of Christian instruction and exhortation. The first two verses of this letter, or the opening of the letter, are known as the prescript. And the prescript identifies the author and the recipients, as well as offers a greeting. So let's start with a, just a very brief introduction to this book based upon what we see in the first few verses. And then we're going to circle back around to the recipients and spend some more time talking about them. So three questions I want to ask in this introductory section. First, who is the author? Well, the author is a person by the name of Jude. And Jude, we see in verse 1, identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, the name Jude is a shortened form of the Hebrew name Judah and the Greek name Judas. In fact, in the Greek text, it's the name Judas. But I think Christians use the name Jude to not confuse him with one particular Judas in the New Testament, the one that betrayed our Lord. But it was a common name. The, the name Jude or Judas or Judah was a common name among Jews in the first century. There are six men named Jude or Judah or Judas in the New Testament. But the most likely candidate for the author of this letter is the half-brother of Jesus. Judas, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, according to John chapter 7, verse 5, Jude did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God or the Messiah during his earthly ministry. In fact, he became converted probably after Jesus' resurrection when he appeared to many of the disciples, including the earthly brothers of our Lord. We know that James believed upon Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, believed upon Jesus after the resurrection. It's presumed that Jude also, at that same time, was converted. We also presume from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, that Jude preached in other parts of the Roman Empire after Pentecost. He probably wrote to those Christians to whom he had ministered or among whom he had influence. We know that the apostles had influence in lots of different places, and so we don't exactly know where Jude ministered or the region that he may have had great influence, but he's probably writing to those who knew him well. Most fascinating to me about Jude is that he does not highlight his earthly relationship to Jesus. He does not tell us here that he is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is He does not say he's the earthly brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he prefers to identify himself by way of the spiritual relationship he has with Jesus. He calls himself, in verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, by identifying himself in this way, Jude acknowledges Jesus' Messiahship as his servant. Or the better translation here is even the word slave. as, As Christ's slave, Jude humbles himself before Christ the King. And he submits to the lordship of Christ. He won't acknowledge his earthly relationship to Jesus as a badge of honor. He does not going to look to find some undue way of acquiring influence for himself by exploiting that earthly relationship. But instead he acknowledges Christ's preeminence and lordship. Jude lives his life in service of Christ. At the same time, that title, a servant of Jesus Christ, which parallels the usage of the other apostles in their letters. Paul oftentimes refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
There is a, a parallel here to what Jude is doing. Also, we notice in the Old Testament that many of the preeminent uh, uh, leaders of the Old Testament Israel were called a servant of the Lord. And perhaps that language is coming over here into the New Testament. Jude here, I think, is expressing not merely this position of humility, but he's also here exerting some apostolic authority. He's using this phrase in a more technical sense that shows that he is a representative of Jesus Christ. He has been authorized by Christ for this ministry that he has. Jude won't use the word apostle about himself. He doesn't identify himself as an apostle in this sense. But he writes this letter with apostolic authority. And so his words should carry weight in the hearing of his recipients. And this is why this letter made it into the canon, because the church recognized that Jude carried an apostolic authority to be able to speak on these matters to the church. Now, we'll talk more about the recipients in just a minute, but let's consider first why Jude wrote this letter. What is Jude's purpose for writing? You'll notice in verse 3 that Jude originally wanted to write a letter of encouragement on the theme of the common salvation that God's people experience in Christ. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So some urgent crisis has manifested itself in the churches, and Jude is compelled to write on this topic. He changes his topic. He even changes probably his tone. You almost imagine what he would write about when he's writing about our common salvation, how, how warm and encouraging and, and, and uplifting that kind of writing would be. But here now the tone is, is more direct. It's more urgent. It's more careful. It's more uh, hortatory, more exhortation. He is writing to his readers to call them to defend the faith that has been faithfully passed on, untainted from Christ through the apostles, now into the next generation of Christians. These people have believed the same gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus himself proclaimed and that Paul and Peter and the other apostles proclaimed. And now as this next generation has come into existence, as they've been converted on the basis of this preaching Jude here acknowledges that they are in that same vein, that they are still God's people, that they must take up the mantle of defending the faith, contending for the faith. What was the crisis that caused Jude to write this letter? Well, in verses 3 through 16, we see that false teachers had infiltrated the church and had taught heretical doctrines that denied Christ and that promoted licentiousness. In fact, Jude takes those many verses, verses 3 to 16, to expose the identity and the destiny of these false teachers. And then in verses 17 to 23, he provides very succinct instruction and exhortation on exactly what this audience, what the believing community should do to contend for the faith. He is clearly calling and urgently calling these believers to vigilance against the intrusion of the spread of false doctrine. He is calling them to steadfastness in the gospel, in the face of this heretical teaching. He is calling them to a defense of the gospel against a full frontal satanic assault. That's why he wrote. He wrote to encourage them to contend for the faith. Well, who is this audience? Who is receiving this letter and why are they receiving? Why are they in need of receiving it? We see the audience listed for us in verse 1. What's interesting here is that typically the New Testament writers, when they would write a letter, would identify their audience on the basis of their their geography, their geographic location. 
the church in Corinth, right? The churches in Galatia. When Peter writes, he's writing to the churches in a, an entire Roman province, the province of Asia Minor. The Christians were known by their location, by their geography, where they met together as a church. But Jude doesn't identify the geographic location of his readers. We don't know where this church was located. We don't know the group, where the group of churches were located that are receiving this letter. But Jude uniquely identifies his readers on the basis of their spiritual identity. Not their geographic identity, but their spiritual identity. This, this description is purposeful and insightful. And it relates particularly to the purpose of this letter. Who are these people who are called to contend for the faith? The images that he uses in this description in verse 1, the language he uses, the truths by which he describes them, are meant to remind them of their identity in Christ. Because of their identity in Christ, Jude is encouraging them for the task that is ahead. He is also giving them perspective to stand fast in the throes of the heated battle. He is stirring up within them a longing for the ultimate victory that is theirs in Christ. Their identification is insightful to us because we likewise are called to defend the faith. We are called to contend for the faith. Because we possess the same faith that they did. The faith that has been faithfully transmitted to us over 2,000 years of history. In Christ, we share the same spiritual identity as the first recipients of this letter. So who are these contenders of the faith? What is their spiritual identity? Well, we see three things that Jude brings out in verse 1 about those who receive this letter. First, we see in verse 1, he says, to those who are called. Believers are called by God. So in the midst of contending for the faith, there might be opportunity for uncertainty or doubt to creep in. And I imagine maybe some of us have experienced this at points in our life. Am I really in the right? How can I be sure that I am in the right? How do I know that I'm the one that's not in error? Well, Jude's answer to this church is that you have been called by God to be his people. He's telling them, he's encouraging them to rest in the truth and the security and the comfort of that call. Now, what does Jude mean by the word call? He says in verse 1, to those who are called. Let's first address what this does not mean. The word call doesn't mean invite. As if God were asking people to a party and they have a choice as to whether they can accept or decline that invitation. The recipients here are not Christians who have voluntarily responded to an invitation and made the decision to believe the gospel. Instead, the word call here refers to the effectual call of God. Doug Moo writes in his commentary that this word reflects the New Testament conviction that being a Christian is a product of God's gracious reaching out to bring helpless sinners into a relationship with himself. We could use the word chosen. We could use the word selected as a synonym for the word called. The word means choose or select and God's choosing because it is he, the sovereign Lord who is doing it, is effective. When God calls a person to salvation, that call does not fail. It is always effective. 
The recipients that Jude is writing to are those whom God has chosen to be his people. His call is a tractor beam that pulls them into a relationship with himself. When the gospel message is proclaimed, God was working in their hearts in such a way to bring them new life. As we saw with Galatians, as we saw with other passages in Ephesians that I know we've looked at recently, we see that God has given even us the very faith to believe in this gospel message that we hear. So when the gospel is proclaimed, we respond in faith, the very faith that God gives to us so that we might be his people. The calling of God is one step in a, in a golden chain of salvation that God works from predestination to glorification. So we are called. But what are the results of this calling for the believer? How does this help us in contending for the faith? Well, we should know that because we are the called, because we are called by God, we are now God's people who belong exclusively to Him. We are God's people who belong exclusively to Him. Paul says in Romans 1, 6 that we are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What a great encouragement. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Paul says that we have been called by God into the fellowship of His Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says that we have been called into God's own kingdom and glory. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we are called to be God's people, exclusively His people, to live in relationship with Him. That calling ties us to God Himself. But another aspect of our calling that's important as we contend for the faith is to understand that our calling now is to live in a new way. To live in a holy way. To live in the way of holiness. The way of sanctification. God has called us to be set apart. He has called us to live a new way of life. He has called us to live in a pattern that imitates our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1 verse 7, Paul says that we are called to be saints. And the Greek word saints literally means holy ones. We are called to be holy ones. We are called to be a holy people. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, to be a holy people. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul writes, To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are called to be elevated to the glory of Christ. We're called to be, to be a different people. People who live in a different way. People who pattern themselves on the, on the character of Christ. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10 that the grace of all, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Christ, God has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. So God has called us to live in, in His way, the new way. He's called us to walk down the narrow path. He's called us to 
walk in a way of faithfulness. Because that is the way of truth. That is the way of joy. That is the way of peace. That is the way of glory. What the false teachers offer here in this context is a cheap invitation of what is truly ours in Christ. What they offer is worthless. It is ugly fool's gold compared with the treasured, glimmering, splendid, pure gold that is Christ. And so as we'll see over the next few weeks, the application that, Paul, that Jude begins to, uh, even now, begin to insert into this letter is that we ought not to be lightly fooled, lightly taken advantage of by the errors and lies of this world. We ought not to be deceived. We ought not to cast it off as something that is just this small or minor thing. There are people who are coming for us. There are people who are seeking to devour us. Satan himself is seeking to devour whomever he will, Scripture says. And what makes our job even more difficult is when the world will wrap around the shroud of Christianity and these things that it calls the truth. And one thing, one strategy that we need to take in contending for the faith is reminding ourselves of who we are. That we have been called by God to be His special people. We are called by God to be His valued possession. We are called by God to be His holy kingdom. So to embrace the lies of this world would be akin then to a princess longing for and seeking out the life of a prostitute. We ought not to want that. We ought not to, to give ourselves over to that. As we walk amidst lies and perversity in this world, we must remember our calling. We have been called by God and we are the recipients of His glorious salvation. And for this very reason then, we ought to take this as a serious issue. Are we indeed, we kind of referenced this last week, are we indeed the people of God? Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10 that we are to make our calling and election sure. Are we indeed called of God? How can we tell? Do we see that faith that we first put in Jesus Christ continuing to be manifested in our lives? Is our faith growing? Are we reflecting more and more our Lord Jesus Christ? God has called us to be His people. And in doing so, He has made us to be believers in Christ and recipients of His glorious salvation. This calling sets us apart from the world to live in a new way. A way that now conforms to the character of Christ and that confers upon us His eternal glory. Believers are called by God. Second, we see in this language in this address to the recipients that we are believers are beloved in God. Believers are beloved in God. Jude says to those who are called, beloved in God the Father. As believers who have been called to salvation as a new people in Christ, the supreme, perfect, and glorious love of God is lavished upon us and now characterizes the realm in which we live. Now, from a grammatical perspective here, Jude is tying God's love intimately with his calling. In other words, the phrase, beloved in God, modifies further the word called. So, God's call to us originates from his love for us. And his call declares to us his love for us. What a beautiful thing to know that God's calling and His love are intimately tied together. 
Now, there is a translation issue in this phrase, beloved in God. It revolves revolves around the preposition in in the ESV. And in Greek, prepositions can take on a number of meanings, and so they are always difficult to translate. It can be translated here as the ESV translates it, also New American Standard, with the word in. So to say, beloved in God. But it can also be translated with the word by, beloved by God. If you have the New King James or the NIV, it probably translates it that way. Let me kind of tease these out just a little bit, okay? The rendering, beloved by God, is probably the clearer and more understandable meaning. So to translate this as beloved by God, to, uh, to those who are called beloved by God, Jude will be saying that God's love is the motivation for our call. That God is the agent who bestows his love upon us. That he is the actor in the divine drama who loves us before we could ever love him. That he is the one who takes initiative to love us. And that we are the object of his full and fervent affections. John writes about this kind of love in 1 John 3, 1, when he says, See that what kind of father, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In 1 John 4, 19, he says, We love because he first loved us. And so the scripture is clear that we are objects of God's love. He chose to love us. And now, because of Christ, we respond back to Him in love. The other rendering, beloved in God, is the more literal, and I think probably the better meaning in this case. Although both, it's like six of one, half dozen of another, right? The meanings are very similar. But if we translate this as the ESV does, beloved in God, Jude will be saying that we live in the sphere or in the realm of God's love. So, an illustration I know I've probably used before here in this church, and one that I kind of go back to, is imagine this bubble, right? Imagine a bubble, and inside the bubble is God. And God's love is permeating every part of that bubble. For Jude to say that we are beloved in God, is for, for Jude to say that what God did was to reach outside of that bubble, to those of us who were outside, we were sinners, we were rebelling against him, and by his grace he plucked us from outside and brought us inside the bubble so that now we are dwelling in the place or the realm or the sphere where God's love permeates, that we live, we abide in, that's a good word, we abide in God's love. John will write about this in 1 John 4.16, so now we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And also John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And so what Jude is saying here is that once we were outside of God's love bubble, if you will, we were once outside. Almost, if you want to, maybe a, a, a uh, popular, another illustration. One I was thinking about this week was the movie The Martian. Have you ever seen the movie The Martian? Where they're setting up, a, these astronauts have set, a, set up a colony on Mars. You can't live on Mars because the conditions aren't habitable. And so they have this structure, right? They've built this temporary structure. And to go outside of that structure is to, to perish unless you put on the special spacesuit, right? But then to go in, you have the conditions where life is possible and acceptable. And so that's kind of another way we can maybe think about this is on the outside, 
We were sinful. We were rebellious. We had sinned against God. We had done all kinds of things. We had lived in our own wickedness, our, our depravity. We were outside of his love, but God, by his grace, reached out and picked us up and put us into the sphere of his love. Well, how did he do that? Well, he did that by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He brought us into the realm of his love by his son, Jesus. As we see the full measure of God's love in the person of Christ and in his atoning death for us on the cross. In Romans 5.8, Paul writes, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, when we look to understand God's love, we should look to the cross. If you ever wonder about God's love for you, if you feel that God's love is distant, if you feel like you're unworthy of God's love, if you feel like you somehow have lost or you've somehow removed yourself from God's love, we as believers should look to the cross and see what Jesus Christ did for us there. The measure of God's love, the fullness of His love is magnified in understanding that we were sinners, that we were wicked people, that we were rebellious by nature that our hearts were full of corruption, that we were glorifying our sinful imaginations. But God loved us, not by overlooking our sin, not by ignoring it, not by sweeping it under the rug, but by sending His own Son, Jesus, to die on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus stood in our place. He suffered the full measure of God's wrath that our sins merited so that his full love could be expressed to us in the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus died and the sufficiency of that sacrifice was what God required, God indeed raised him from the dead so that we can be sure of God's love for us. Why did God do this? Because of his love. Adam opened a service with it this morning. John 3.16 For God so loved the world for God so loved the world. What did He do? That He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a display of love. And so Jude reminds the, his readers here that they are beloved in God. Because of God's love, they are then now able to contend for the faith. They're going to be hated by the world, but that's okay. Because they are beloved in God. They are living in the sphere, in the realm of God's love. They will suffer severely for the sake of Christ. They will appear to others to be naive, mistaken, or just plain wrong. And all of these things will appear to them in that moment as if God doesn't love that. Can you imagine suffering for Christ? Can you imagine undergoing some kind of persecution? Can you imagine going through all of the criticism and ridicule and thinking, maybe God doesn't love you? And Jesus is affirming them, look, you're going to endure these things. You're going to go through these hardships. Bad and ugly things are going to happen to you. But you know what? You are beloved in God. And it's that love of God that motivates us to contend for the faith. 
It's for this reason that Jude will say in verse 2, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In other words, it's not as if these readers don't have God's love, but they can somehow run out of God's love. They have it, and they have it in full. But Jude prays that as they persevere through this trial, they would know that they are loved, that they would be confident in that love, that they would benefit from that love in their daily living, despite all the trials, despite all the difficulties, despite all the hardships. So in standing in the truth and contending for the faith, we must remember that we live and abide in God's love. And all of the resources of his love are brought to bear in their fullness to help us stand in times of adversity. We must discipline ourselves to keep abiding in that love. In fact, Jude will say in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. So we are called by God to salvation. We are called by God to sanctification. We are beloved in God as we dwell in the realm where God's love abides upon us. And then third, we see that Jude says these believers are kept for Jesus Christ. Believers are kept for Jesus Christ. God's calling upon believers manifests the greatness of His love, but it also promises them a security. A security that will guard them and preserve them beyond the scope of this life, even to all eternity. God's permanent protection abides upon us as His called people. And again, like the previous phrase, this phrase, kept for Jesus Christ, grammatically is tied intimately to calling. In other words, this phrase, kept for Jesus Christ, fleshes out more, elaborates more on this aspect of calling. The phrase, kept for Jesus Christ, modifies and describes further what it means to be called. God's calling ensures that we are kept for eternity, and His keeping reveals that we truly have been called. Now, like beloved in God, there's another translation issue here with the word that's translated as for, kept for Jesus Christ. That's a good translation, probably the better translation, but it could also be translated by the word by, kept by Jesus Christ. The rendering kept for Jesus Christ indicates that those whom God has called, he keeps safe and secure to present to Christ at the end of the age as part of his eternal reward. Do you realize that you are the reward that God will give to Christ at the very end. Boy, that's something. Because I don't deserve to be a reward for Jesus Christ. And yet that is what God will give to His Son on the final day. And so we are kept for Jesus Christ. We are eternally kept for Jesus Christ to be given as a gift for Him. We are. That's why His preserving power continues and abides in this life, throughout this life, so that we might be given to Him at the end of the age. The rendering by, kept by Jesus Christ, indicates that Jesus keeps us safe in His protection and care. So that if we are called by God, if we've been called by His love, if we have His love abiding upon us, we are eternally safe in Jesus Christ. In fact, to translate by would indicate that Jesus is the agent of keeping it. The responsibility of keeping belongs to Him. We do read about this in John 10. Verses 27 and 29, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So who does the keeping? 
It's both father and sons. I've heard before, it's like we're doubly protected. Extra level of security. Both the son keeps and the father keeps. And so we see here Jude reminding the believers that he's writing to, referring to them as the faithful and, and loving and secure people, that they are in the secure care of Christ and of the Father. Jesus is watching over them. Father is watching over them, guarding them, defending them, protecting them, and keeping them all the way into and throughout eternity. So whether we translate this as by or for, the point is that we are kept eternally safe. And so what Jude is doing here is he is here reminding his readers of the doctrine of perseverance that we looked at last week at the end of Galatians. And this is important because in their defense of the faith, as they contend for the faith, there would be some who would be lost to heresy. There would be some who would be lost to despair. There would be some that would be lost even to death. But Jude is calling his readers to remember the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord. And because God is faithful, they are to continue in steadfast faithfulness as they contend for the gospel in light of the promise that we are truly kept safe in Christ. Now, I would say here that keeping does not imply physical safety. There may be times where our bodies will be destroyed. That has been a theme of Christian history. That's a theme of Christians who live in other parts of the world. The body they may kill. But we are eternally secure. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Our fear is to be the fear of God, knowing that we are kept by Him. Jude's readers can stand up to the challenge of contending for the faith because they are eternally safe. They are kept by God to be presented to Christ when he returns to reign in the fullness of his glory. So because we are called, we are kept. And because we are kept, we continue to faithfully do all that God has commanded us to do, no matter what the cost, even defending the gospel of Christ, the source of our faith. So we are called by God, we are beloved in God, and we are kept for Jesus Christ. This is who we are in Christ. We are in this way like Jude's first readers. No matter where God's children live across the globe, no matter when they live in history, no matter what adversity they face, they are called, they are loved, and they are kept. Every single one of them. It's for this reason when Jude extends his greeting that he offers this prayer, beautiful prayer for them. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to them. Jude doesn't fear that somehow they haven't received God's mercy, peace, and love, or that they have somehow exhausted God's mercy, peace, and love. But no, Jude prays that God would multiply his mercy, peace, and love to his readers because he wants them to be grateful for these gifts and to benefit from them in their daily living. Yes, when we first believed, God loved us. We believe that. But God's love endures. We have God's love even now. As we sit in this room, we'll have God's love tomorrow. And that should strengthen us. It should empower us to keep living faithful lives. When God's mercy, peace, and love abound to His people, they can stand for the truth and contend for the faith. May we delight in our calling to salvation. May we delight in our beloved status in the realm of God's love. May we delight in our eternal security in Christ. Because we delight in these gifts from God, let us more earnestly love Him with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. 
And let us diligently devote ourselves to our sanctification, that we might display to the world that we indeed have been called by God. And let us, as Jude exhorts us, let us earnestly contend for the faith, the gospel, the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the only good news for the world. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this just very brief and tiny letter tucked into the very back of our New Testament. And though it has not received the attention that it should by Christians over the ages, we are thankful that it is your word to us. We thank you that you have preserved it for us. We thank you inspired it for us. We pray that we would draw from its truth and be greatly encouraged, Father, not only to know the truth, but to walk out the truth and to defend the truth, to contend for the faith. Father, we are living, it seems, in a more increasingly hostile culture, a culture where not only Christianity is not tolerated, but that it is attacked. And our hope and our goal is to stand firmly for the gospel, to stand firmly for Christ, to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so I pray that as we do that, you would remind us of our calling in Christ, remind us of what you have done for us in him, remind us, Lord, of our love, of the love you've given to us, Remind us, Lord, that we are eternally safe in you, that no matter what happens to us, that we are safe in your, in your protection, that you are preserving us to give to your very Son at the end of the age. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this grace of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.